right, friends, Greg Kokel here, and the show is Stand to Reason. And just want you to know that if you haven't signed up for the reality in Philadelphia coming up this weekend, uh, we're almost completely and utterly sold out. The main auditorium, 1,100 people sold out. 200 for overflow, 125 sold out. That means there's 75 seats left. Okay, my suspicion, based on the way virtually every single reality has gone, all season long is those 75 seats are going to be sold out. If you've been thinking about coming to Philly this weekend, March 24th and 25th, um, and you haven't signed up yet, go right now to realityapologetics.com and make sure you get your tickets. 75 left. I think that's as of yesterday, which for me would be as of Monday. For with you, that would be two days ago. So get cracking. All right, plenty of room right now in Georgia for April 21st and 22nd. That's Augusta, Georgia, right there on the border with uh, South Carolina. Uh, actually, technically, we are in South Carolina. We're on the other side of the border, but, you know, Augusta, Georgia is what people know about, and that's uh, on the 21st and 22nd. You can also sign up there. Um, we've got plenty of room there uh, so far at the moment, but the pattern has been we're just locking things down, and it's been wonderful. It just seems like Dallas was a couple of days ago, and it was three weeks ago. And uh, that was magnificent. Again, total sellout there. And we get to have two more run-throughs. I have gone to every one, sat in the gallery for every single um, event. And certainly the Friday night presentation, the whole thing, I like watching my team work. And then I can also, I, you know, talk about tightening things up a little bit and do a critique. Uh, but I haven't critiqued much because they've done such a fabulous job. It's really been great. And uh, I haven't gotten tired of it. So I got two more shots at this main event on Friday night especially. And uh, something very, very unique that we're doing this year that we won't be doing in subsequent years. So if you if you haven't gotten your tickets for Philly, do it now. If you haven't for Georgia, you got a few weeks, but I'd move on it. Okay. Um, it's been really, really a great season for us with uh, Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. Once again, that uh, website is realityapologetics.com. It has all the information. And since I'm doing announcements here, I'm going to get into some things uh, in just a moment. Some detail of the Ambassador's Creed that has, a, I found, a unique and, and really productive application uh, for, and I'll tell you about that in just a moment. But I did want you to know that we actually have a uh, brand new STRU course. That, well, it's coming up March 31st, so what's that'll be by the, the end of the month, another you know, week plus, and that is our science and faith compatible, and the inimitable Mr. B, Tim Barnett, will be uh, doing that course, the five-part course, and uh, many of you have taken STRU courses. They're, they're meant to be, it's not a real university, but everybody knows that. It's meant to be a place where you can go and get some training in a basic sense on really important issues, and our whole team is involved in those courses, and there's little tests at the end, but it's just meant to get you grounded and founded in the important issues, and the tests help you to recall things and and uh, reflect on it, and people do this as groups. In fact, they do it in, uh, lots of times in the standard reason outposts that are developing around the country. And incidentally, we've got about 70 of those, 
and you can find them on our website. But if uh, if you are, or you can go to str.org slash outposts to find out on the map where they're all showing up. But you can start your own, too. And, uh, in fact, we're shooting. we got 71. I have 30 more by, the, by, by September. September is when we launched last year. And if we can get 100 in the first year, we're going to be really thrilled. We're actually really thrilled with where we're at right now. But uh, these, are, uh, these outposts are local communities of Christians that are seeking answers to the hard questions about classical Christianity, things they've been confronting maybe in their community with other Christians or non-Christians. Um, the outposts are led by a qualified director who's got to jump through a bunch of hoops that Robbie um, has set up, Robbie Lasho, who, who runs that enterprise. And, uh, and th- this is basically to vet potential leaders for those groups. So um, you have to kind of go through the steps, and um, that leader, that director, provides the STR content on Christian apologetics and leads the discussions on defending the faith. So this is this might be one of the things you've been looking for in your local community if you don't have that. You know, and I've talked at the end of the tactics book, I talk about, uh, you know, if you got wet wood and you want to start a fire with wet wood you you, you need to get some dry tinder <laughs> and we have a lot of wet wood right now in southern california it's been raining for weeks and all the reservoirs are filled that's great but uh when it comes to firewood that's not good so we've had having trouble starting our own fire well what do you do you got to get some dry tinder if your community your christian community is not f- already fired up at all about apologetics you could be the fire that that gets it going, but you need to start with dry tinder. That means people of uh, kindred spirit who care about the things that you care about and who uh, are interested in apologetics and could be part of an organized effort in an outpost uh, to be a smaller community within the community that begins to make a difference with other people there. Not so you can be smarty pants, tell everybody else all the right answers. That's not the spirit but to be available to serve that community with the things that you know. And that's part of what we're looking to have happen in our outposts, okay? Um, and last couple of things here. Uh, Mr. B, Tim Barnett, will be speaking at Calvary Fellowship Church in Downington, Pennsylvania, this Sunday morning. Okay, so that's not far from where maybe it is the place where we're having our reality. This That's uh, March 26, Sunday morning, Calvary Fellowship Church. Downington, Pennsylvania, and he'll be holding over from the reality for this weekend, Tim Barnett, and Alan and Tim both will be speaking at the Equip—boy, that's a one-two punch. Wish I was going. That'll be the at the Equip Youth Conference on Friday, March 31st through April 1st in Barney, Ontario, which would be in Canada. So that'll be— um, Tim's home turf, but Alan would be joining him. Once again, the Equip Youth Conference, March 31st through April 1st in Barrie. That's B-A-R-R-I-E, Ontario, Canada. Now, I mentioned that I was going to uh, reflect on something in our Ambassador's Creed. The Ambassador's Creed is at the end of both editions of the Tactics book, and it's uh, something that we I put together a number of years ago that is meant to express the virtues of a good ambassador, okay? So an ambassador is ready, and I have an explanation. An ambassador is patient, 
an explanation. An ambassador is reasonable and tactical. And, turning the page, an ambassador is clear. But another thing that um, an ambassador is, um, is fair and honest and humble. And under uh, humble, I have as a characterization, an ambassador is provisional in his claims, knowing that his understanding of truth is fallible and will not press a point beyond what his evidence allows. Now, there are points that we, have, that we make as followers of Christ that we have a tremendous amount of justification for, and so we can press those points aggressively. There are other points, things that we believe, and sometimes these are tertiary, secondary tertiary issues. They're issues of theology. Well, I could be wrong about these things. Actually, we could be wrong about most things. And having a, an attitude of, of humility about that, that, well, we could be wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. I have reasons for believing what I believe. I have convictions, in other words, um, and uh, I'm not just socialized to spout out the party line because it's the party line, and this is true of a lot of people, even Christians, you know. Um, it doesn't mean their views are false, even if they're just pouting the party line, but we, we, we want to have reasons for the views we have. But even so, sometimes our reasons are so good. They're as good as they can be because some issues are hard to figure out and we take a shot. Okay, but those are things that we don't want to hang on to more as aggressively as others. We want to hang on to our convictions with the level of certitude that our justification um, allows. Okay, so th this is just focusing in on the virtue of a good ambassador of humility. Some things we're going to be very insistent on because we have solid reasons for believing them. Other things we're not going to be so insistent on. Now, what, what this caches itself out in the area of apologetics in a very particular way. And the particular way that it caches itself out is that even when we have really good reason for holding the view that we hold, we might want to back off just a little bit and make our assertion in a more modest way. And by making the assertion in a more modest way, we are actually strengthening our case. All right, I'm going to give you two examples, and one is one that I use frequently, and another one is one I just read. And it's a new one for me, this application, though the principle I'm aware of. And the principle is not overstating our case. Even if we think we have really good reason to make very, very strong statements of certitude. By contrast, by having the perspective that I could be mistaken, because that's true with almost everything we know. With almost everything we know, it's possible that we could be mistaken. Now, Rene Descartes famously said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. 
that's pretty airtight. All right. Uh, if you're a thinking something, then you must be a something. <laughs> right? So, but most things are not like that. Most things are very, very high level of confidence based on the evidence, but we could be mistaken. And when we say we could be mistaken about something, and we say it with integrity, um, in other words, we actually believe it's possible I could be mistaken, even though I don't think I am, then that actually, I think, conveys a sense of humility to uh, to the people we're talking to and and makes our our points more believable. Okay, so, and, and here's how that works. One of the arguments for the existence of God is called a cosmological argument, and that is an argument for God's existence based on the existence of the universe. Now, there are different forms of this argument, but one of the most popular has been re- revivified, I should say, by, by William Lane Craig, and it's known as the Kalam cosmological argument, and it's based on the, the coming into existence of the universe that, uh, that it suggests strongly a cause. And so you've got a metaphysical notion that effects have causes that are adequate to the effects. They're adequate to explain them. And so when something happens, it's fair to ask what caused that thing to happen. And in the case of the origin of the universe, the Big Bang, uh, the Big Bang needs a Big Banger. That's the way I like to put it. And that's a shorthand for the Kalam cosmological argument. Okay. Now, um, is it possible... I'm mistaken. Well, you know, I'm not inclined to think that something can come from nothing. So what is it? Uh, the, the From nothing, nothing comes. I can't remember the Latin for that. And Ex nihilo, nihilo fit, I think. And that's a pretty common sense notion. If you're starting with nothing, you're not going to get something from nothing. So when you are faced with the origin of the universe and the question, where did the universe come from, the question is, what caused it? And the, the answer is either no thing or something. And if it's something, it will have to be something adequate to the effect, the origin of the universe. And very quickly, you're going to land somewhere that's very close to the God of the Bible, okay? Uh, and since atheists want to go, don't want to go there, then what's the alternative that's left? Well, there's only one alternative. It's either something or not, <laughs> which would be something or no thing. And so they want to say no thing caused the universe. And I'm saying no thing, two words, instead of nothing, because that's like a synonymous way of putting it, because sometimes people treat nothing as if it were something. Yes, something caused the universe. What was it that caused the universe? The thing that caused the universe was nothing. Nothing did the causing. And it's just funny the way they talk about it. So when I say no thing, make it into two words, then they can't make that move so easily. Okay. Uh, and a lot of people will say nothing caused it, and then the nothing turns out to be something, you know, uh, the quantum vacuum or whatever. And so consequently, I just want to put it this way. Now, here's the move that I'm suggesting we make here, and I have suggested it in the past, and that is we don't say 
that it's impossible for something to come from nothing. I think that's the case. That's my conviction. And I think it's well justified. But the minute you say that it's impossible, all the skeptic has to do is argue that it's possible. And if he can imagine that it's possible, that's enough for him. And therefore, this is adequate in his mind to disregard your case. What's a better way of putting it? The better way of putting it is not claiming it's impossible for something to come from nothing, but rather that it's not the odds-on favorite. And of course, when I give my talks on this, this is how I put it. I mean, really, um, gals, if you came home one night and you looked in the garage and you saw a brand new Mercedes SL, and you said to your husband, honey, what's that? brand new Mercedes SL doing in the in the garage, and your husband said, well, darling, it just popped into existence out of nothing for no reason with no cause. I mean, look at this, the way people say the universe came into existence, so I don't know why it can't happen with a little Mercedes SL. Now, ladies, are you going to buy that? Even if metaphysically you think it's possible such a thing that might happen, would you buy that explanation for the Mercedes in your garage? The answer is no. Be- why not? Because it's not the odds-on favorite. So you get that. Now, if we go with that characterization, maybe it's possible something could come from nothing, but it's not the odds-on favorite. It's not the most reasonable. Now, that changes things for the skeptic, because the skeptic, before, if you say it's impossible for something to come from nothing, all the all the skeptic has to do to defeat your very strong claim now that you may think is well justified, still, all he's got to do is be able to imagine a circumstance where it's possible. If it's imaginable to him, then it's possible, and then he defeats your defeater. Okay? And 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 now you're stuck. But if you simply say, well, maybe it's possible, but it ain't reasonable, is it the odds-on favorite? No, the odds-on favorite is something caused it, because that's our uniform experience. Now he's got to show that it's more reasonable that nothing caused it than that something caused it. That changes everything immensely, okay? So, <clears throat> excuse me, there's the, there's the principle in play, making the more modest claim, um, which ends up actually strengthening your argument. Uh, and I've used as an example a cosmological argument for the existence of God based on the beginning of the universe that, that depends uh, for its force, the way I'm characterizing it, as the unlikeliness that something would come from nothing. It is much more likely there is a cause to the universe, and then you have to ask what was the cause, and what kind of cause would have been adequate to the, for the effect that we know as the universe. Now, all of that having been said, I just read a different application to this notion, and it was uh, a piece written by Dolores Morris, who is a PhD in philosophy in some Southern Florida University, a Christian, and she's written a book called, uh, let's see, I'm actually thinking about maybe getting this. Uh, uh, I think it's called, yes, Believing Philosophy. And she's a, a Christian a philosopher who is writing to help Christians 
make the case for Christianity. So she's an apologist also. I, I don't know her, but I read this piece. I thought it was great. And she was making the same point that I've made in the past, but she's making application in a different way than I have made it. Now, I've just many of you know, I've just finished this book called Street Smarts. I'm working right now on the study guide. I've already done the videos for it. And so all this is coming out in the fall. I think September 12th is the release date for the book. And as soon after that, they'll release the workbook. And uh, that would be the study guide along with the videos and the the audio that's all coming up. Okay. But I'm, I'm uh, and I'm, I'm in this book, Street Smarts, I'm using a tactical approach. You Columbo number three, especially to deal with particular challenges. One is the problem of evil. And I'm making the case, as many of you have heard me do here, that there can only be a problem of evil if if morality is objective as opposed to subjective. If moral relativism is true, there can't be a problem of evil because what's good and bad is just a matter of a person's own preferences or subjective tastes or something like that. No, in order for there to be real evil in the world, there's got to be a real moral law in the world that gets broken. That's my language. Now, where do you, how do you account for real moral law? It turns out that evolution is not going to be able to do that, because evolution can only give you relativistic morality, and it's not enough to ground a real problem of evil that we all know is a real problem, okay? So how do you get that? Well, you only get real laws from a real lawmaker, okay? And since the laws are transcendent, the lawmaker has to be transcendent, and he's the one to whom we're obliged with the law. If we break the law, we answer to him. Now, that all makes perfect sense. But how do you make sense of objective morality that's necessary for a real problem of evil that people complain about if there is no lawmaker, okay? Now, my opinion, you can't do that. It's not doable. There is no other explanation. And I've heard a bunch of them, but none of them go through. None of them are adequate. So I am completely convinced, um, with, with a massive degree of certitude, that being able to ground objective morality without an objective moral lawmaker, God of some sort, is impossible. Okay? And I actually... This is the way I make my case, and I probably use that kind of language in the book, which is already written, so I'm not going to rewrite it. But following Dolores Morris's recommendation, I'll read some from her article. Um, that's not a good strategy. It would be better if I did the same thing with the moral argument for God's existence that I do with the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. Can something come from nothing? Probably not. It's certainly not the odds-on favorite, even if it's possible. And what she suggests is taking the same uh, approach with the moral argument. So let me uh, read what she has to say. She writes, I believe real objective morality is excellent evidence for God's existence. I spent three chapters in my book, Believing Philosophy, defending the claim that his existence is the best explanation available for morality. And by the way, you might have picked up on the words there. I'm sure these are her own, but it's very similar to what I've said frequently, that God is the best explanation for the way things are, and not just for the existence of the universe and the design in the universe, but also for uh, the morality we experience in the universe. God's the best explanation. It has explanatory power. And by the way, that language is, 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 the, is the 
the kind of language that I'm advancing here and reinforced by what philosopher Dolores Morris has said here, um, that it may not be the only possible explanation that sets the standard way higher for us, but it's the best explanation. If moral truths are objective, she writes, their truth doesn't depend on the opinion of any human person or community. That's relativism. Instead, facts about what humans should and shouldn't do are independently existing, universally applicable things. Philosophers call this view moral realism. Okay, so she says, I agree with all that. What's the problem with advancing a case like that? And she says, it's, uh, it's that improbability and impossibility aren't the same thing. And then notes that serious atheistic philosophers are aware of the tension between atheism and robust moral realism. They realize mm, there's a problem here. Some respond by rejecting moral realism, and in my experience, that is the majority of atheists. They all opt for something like Darwinism, and which is a, not an objectivist uh, explanation. If Darwin, that is, Darwinian evolution, is responsible for our moral convictions, that's a relativistic version of morality. And I argue that way in the book, um, because it all depends on feelings inside of us caused by the neo-Darwinian synthesis, okay? It's inside, it's not outside, so it's got to be relativistic, all right? Um, and, and nevertheless, there are some professional philosophers who have written whole books, she writes, aimed at demonstrating how morality, real, universal, exceptionless morality, might be compatible with their atheistic worldview. And her words are carefully selected here, might be. Now, it's going to be hard for them to say, oh, this shows up for a certainty that it's compatible. These are just projects trying to make it compatible, okay? So in light of that, um, she gives the same recommendation about the moral argument that I gave about the Kalam um, cosmological argument. Um, I'm looking for where I want to pick up here in the piece. It, it, she, she, implausible that atheism can ground objective morality? Yes. Impossible? Uh, we don't need to go that way. She said, it might be tempting to think even this minimal concession grants too much to the atheist. Why limit ourselves to the weaker claim that maybe it may be possible that atheism can ground objective morality, but it'd be better for us to make the weaker claim that atheist morality is atheistic moral realism is improbable. Okay, why? Here's what she says, um, and she calls this epistemic humility that we take care not to overstate the case for theism, because when we do, we actually make the job uh, of uh, for—we're careful not to overstate it. We make the weaker claim. We make the job of the skeptic more difficult, which is good. Okay, um, think of it this way, she writes. I argue the existence of God is a simpler, more straightforward, and more likely explanation of moral realism than any atheistic alternative. To object, the atheist moral, moral realist, the one who doesn't believe in God but does believe in objective morality, must give evidence that her view is a better explanation than mine. Mere possibility isn't enough. 
This is a question of plausibility. When a Christian leads with the impossibility of another's view, any possibility at all will suffice to undermine her argument. Now, it may be that moral realism is impossible, she continues, without God. Atheistic moral realists might be defending views that are ultimately contradictory, but even if that were true, it would be difficult a difficult truth to demonstrate. In contrast, it's not at all difficult to defend the claim that God is a better explanation of objective morality than a mindless, naturalistic universe could ever be. The weaker claim is enough. In fact, she points out, the weaker claim yields a stronger argument. So that's great. Uh, I love this piece, and I think Amy will probably put a link to it. Um, and um, I don't know if I'll ever met, meet Dolores Morris, Ph.D. from uh, Notre Dame, now uh, teaching in, I think, South Florida University. Um, but good for her. This is a good piece. And I, I, I agree, have always agreed with this notion, but I didn't apply it to the moral argument like she has encouraged us to apply it. Uh, if we if we claim some some option counter to Christianity is impossible, all the skeptic has to do is is suggest to their confidence that it's possible, and they could dismiss our case. If rather we say, okay, it may be possible for sake of argument, but is it plausible? Is it the best explanation for the way things are? Is, is, it, uh, is, it, is that where the smart money is? Is it the most reasonable alternative? That amps up their burden so much that they can't bear it. They can't carry it, because they have to show not that their view is possible, but that their view is most—not even that it's plausible, but that it's more plausible— than a theistic alternative on whatever issue that you're arguing. So still, the approach that, as I've said in the past, the reason I'm a Christian is that it's the best explanation for the way things are, is, is the most strategically sound approach. Even if you think your evidence is adequate for you to say, it's the only explanation for the way things are, Nevertheless, taking the, making the weaker assertion allows you to make a stronger argument. All right? All right, let's take a break, and we'll get to calls here on Stand to Reason when I return. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith, because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR outpost. 
STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. All right, back at you here, Greg Kogel and Stan Reason. Just reflecting a few moments ago, 33 years, actually 34th year in broadcasting. It's amazing when I think about it. But now, well, this is our 30th year, actually, anniversary coming up in about five weeks, May 1st, our 30th year at Stan Reason. You're going to be hearing more about that during the year. And, uh, in fact, Solid Ground starting May 1st are going to be uh, kind of classics from the past. We're going to recycle some things. And Amy and I looked over a list. She brought the list, uh, put it together, and I vetted it, and it was great. Um, it was great selections. I think each of these things that we'll be doing the next year on Solid Grounds are uh, very characteristic uh, uh, and say something important about our broader project as an organization and what we've been trying to pursue the last uh, 30 years, I think, not just trying, but succeeding in, in some significant way, and uh, and look forward to the future years. I, I'm not going to say, like, okay, we got 30 down, we're shooting for the next 30. I'm not, 30 years, I'll be 103. I don't think I'm going to make it that long. Okay, just saying. But uh, we want to stay uh, in play as long as the Lord allows us, and we're going to seek to be faithful on our side. Um to that end, all right? And uh, so far, I'd say we've been faithful to that end for 30 years, and uh, if God gives us a few more, we'll take it. Um, we want to finish well. Well, I want to finish well, and hopefully after I finish, the standard reason won't be finished, because the, this enterprise, I didn't plan to say anything about this, but this enterprise, standard reason, is not about an individual person. It's about a larger project. And it stands on its own feet without the individual. That would be me. And uh, even though I've been at the helm more or less for the last 30 years, and I say more or less because a lot of other people do a lot of the heavy lifting that I don't have to do to keep us going. Um, they make me look good. But uh, nevertheless, they remain. If I move on, you know, it doesn't matter. The project still remains. Stand a reason remains and the mission, and the vision, and what we're trying to do, and the great team that I have uh, been working with for years, and they'll remain. Okay. Okay. Um, was, was I going somewhere with that? That I <laughs> Amy's looking like, no, you're never going anywhere with anything. You're just talking. So, uh, all right, move on. All right, let's go to, uh, maybe I'll remember if there's anything else. Well, let's go to uh, Oregon, and Nathan, welcome to the show, Nathan. Glad you called. Hey, Greg. Thanks hey, for having me. You're welcome. What's up? So, this is in response to last week's talk. I just listened to it today, actually. It was on uh, predestination mm -hmm. and all that. And I was thinking, you, you mentioned, it was over the verses, the Romans, and I think you brought up, it was the verse in Timothy, 
but it's kind of comparing the two. Um, the difference between God wanting everyone to be saved and God predestining some people to be saved. Right? Yeah, I, I was in, by comparing the passages, I was answering uh, one particular concern that could God will something in two different ways, or how could God want everybody to be saved, but then predestine for salvation, elect for salvation, if you will, only a smaller number, not everyone. And the the way to avoid the apparent contradiction is to see that he could want things in one way uh, that's different from another way of wanting it. For the sake of discussion, we might call it his moral desires that he wants people to do, but he 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 let he it's it's the people's responsibility to do that or his sovereign desires or sovereign will and that's something that he wants that he is going to ensure and if you keep those in their two separate categories and i by the way there's no way to understand the notion of god's will in the new testament without having two categories uh um or you you can't avoid a contradiction um, because there are, there's a, a sense of God's will that cannot be defeated, and there's a sense of God's will that can be defeated. So there are clearly two different categories. But what that does is amend or at least remove the obstacle of the apparent contradiction. That doesn't affirm the doctrine. It is just meant to show that this concern is not a concern that creates problem for the doctrine of, of election or predestination regarding salvation. Yeah, so okay. the, yeah, this, that's the long way of saying, yes, you're right, but I just wanted to bring everybody up to speed and clarify what I meant specifically. Got it, yeah. No, thank you for that. That was good. Um, so my question comes in is, why would God predestine anyone to be saved at all? Mm-hmm. Thinking about the whole concept of free will, a lot of people would say, well, God doesn't, God doesn't determine whether or not we're saved or sin or whatever because he lets us choose our own paths, but then the verse seems to indicate that he does choose some people. So what's the what's the benefit in choosing some people to well, be Well, yeah, I, I like uh, I like the way you put it here um for yourself. I mean, sometimes what people will do will say, "Well, God gave us free will." And they might add, "Well, God will never violate your free will." And I'm not even sure where they get that from scripture that God would never violate your freedom, okay? Um as if freedom is somehow sacrosanct, okay? That God won't do anything with you that you don't that you don't agree to let him do or something. That's just not a biblical doctrine. Um, but but it does raise the question, if there is a sense in which God, in a determinative way, rescues some people, then how do we make sense out of free will? Uh, I mean, that's a that's a question. And also, why would he do that with some and not with all? And, um, and so, I mean, part of it has to do with understanding what freedom means. And I th- and there are different ways to understand the notion of freedom, but clearly freedom doesn't mean no restraints, no restrictions. Um, not, well, not when we talk about free will, because we always are able to exercise our ability to decide for ourselves within certain limits. Okay, so I mean, I to to use a goofy example, I I I can uh, I can I can walk, but I can't fly, you know, because my nature isn't the nature of a flying thing, and I don't have wings, um, but I can bipedal, so I can walk. So our choices are free. That is, we have options that we can make that we can choose within restraints. 
that are that are relevant to our natures okay and when it comes to um, fallen human beings the fall itself though we have an ability to make choices such that we could choose a or not choose a and choose b we have the ability the power to do otherwise if you will we have genuine freedom in that regard um there 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 are restraints on that in certain areas okay and so since the fall it has been impossible for example for people not to sin before the fall it's possible to sin or possible not to sin adam and eve were innocent and they had in a certain sense the freedom to do either now after the fall we have lots of freedom but one of those freedoms we don't have is the freedom not to sin because everybody is a sinner by nature and so sin is going to eventually be something we do even though we have choices that we can make so we're not automatons but something about our circumstances has changed that has really affected our ability to make choices does that make sense so far i think so yeah Okay, uh, let me just, before we go further, because this is important, what part maybe doesn't make sense, and I, well, maybe I can clarify. Or maybe you're just saying, I, I understand, but I not necessarily agree. It might, no, I think I'm kind of getting it, but like, I might need to hear where you're going with it okay. to sort of understand the point. Okay, because the restraints, the fall creates restraints on freedom, okay? And one obvious one, and it's not theologically um, controversial, is that prior to the fall, sinlessness was possible as a matter of choice. After the fall, sinlessness was not possible after a choice. So I'm just making the case that in a very important way, the fall has affected what we are capable of choosing. And, and, and this is not controversial. Okay, now the question is, what other things does the fall affect in the area of choice? Okay, and um, my own my own view, and it's it's part of the backdrop to the passage that we talked about yesterday, is that we are not on our own, given the fall, capable of choosing God for His own sake, choosing Him to believe in Him, to trust in Him, to do what He wants us to do, either obey all the time or turn to Him for salvation and the reason is is because our hearts are set against him our wills to to use one characterization of it and i think i got this from turretin or no i got this from hodge ancient theologian but did great work in these area this area our wills are in virtue of the fall are now inclined against god so even though we have lots of choices that we are capable of making that are our own and are free we could have done otherwise. When it comes to God, those choices are always going to be influenced by the fall, and apart from God's intervention, we are going to choose against Him, because our will is inclined against Him. And this is why we are all children of wrath, by nature, Ephesians chapter 2, okay? And Paul talks about the Romans 3, you know, there's none who does good, not even one. He's got all these grotesque characterizations of fallen man, and he's taken it from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament uh, doctrine here of human anthropology is the same as Paul's New Testament doctrine. We're in trouble, 
Okay. There are different ways to solve this problem, but uh, I'll just give you, I mean, Armenians have offered some alternative ways of understanding this, but I'm just giving you my characterization that I think is most consistent with the Romans passage that we talked about last week, which uses the word predestination. We have been predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. But the predestination to become conformed to the image of His Son depends on some other things happening. That's the end, not the beginning. He says those these who um, He predestined to that end, He called, and those He called, He justified, and those He justified, He also glorified. And of course, the glorification is that end that He had in mind to be like Jesus. So these are all packaged together. So um, that's necessary for God to act in that way, because human beings now, since the fall, will exercise the freedom they have to continue to rebel against God and to run from Him. Left on their own, they would never come to God. That is the impact of the fall. Okay? And so that's why God has to act. Because if he didn't act, no one would be saved. There would be no one in heaven, and there would be no bride for Christ. But God purposes to have a bride for Christ of a certain sort, holy and blameless like Christ himself, white and purified by the Word. And so God guarantees a bride for Christ by electing those he would save, and in the act of election, in the work of that, he changes our wills and inclines our will back to us so that we then choose him in virtue of a vivified will. In other words, a regenerated will, if, if you will. I, maybe that's not the best word to use because that has other theological ramifications, but somehow God is he's inclining the will towards us. So we end up believing in Christ, not because we're forced to, we will to. But it's a will that is a result of the work of God in our lives. And had not God done that, there would be no bride for Christ. So basically, it's, the, the point you're getting at is that it's not just beneficial, but it's more so necessary to have selected at least some people to be inclined or, I don't know what the right word is here, but like to be willing to accept God for the purpose of reaching out to others. Some are. I don't want to say forced. Like it's it's a predestination. Yeah, that's right. Selects you, but it, it is forced. You would say like no, it's not forced. It's forced, it's, it's not forced. It's just like you. You know, are you married? No. Oh, okay. Well, I can't use that illustration. <laughs> uh, so married the bachelors who are, you know, in, in the Western tradition at least, when they're getting married, they're not forced to. They're not forced to love their wives. They do love their wives which is why they want to marry them. Right. But the but they didn't there was no choice to do that. They weren't exercising their will to love them. They were exercising their will to act on the love and desire they had to get married and seal that by walking down the aisle. And so we wouldn't say then and there's no force anywhere in that. But uh, and I think the same but it's sometimes characterized that that way and I think it's a mischaracterization. Because what, what, what God does is he draws us into him. And, he, and, and there's, a couple, there's a couple of things I'm working with here. And one of them is the passage in Romans 8 that seems so straightforward in light of the nature of predestination, 
regarding salvation. And I'm always qualifying this because believing in predestination for salvation in the sense that Paul means it does not mean that we are robots, that some we've been changed into machines. All it means is that God acts in such a way as to guarantee a certain end regarding us. That end is to make us like Christ, and there's a process that he also warrants that's described here in Romans 8, I just read it, that ends up at this destination, <laughs> this that that is previously determined. That's why it's a predestination, and the destination is that we're glorified and we are like Christ. But God is the one who secures that. The means he does that is mysterious, but it's not forcing anybody to do anything. It is changing them so they want to do what they choose to do. And um, I am, to some degree, when I'm reflecting on how this happens, I'm speculating a little bit based on other things that are said. But what I know pretty confidently is what happens, what God does, because there it is right there in Romans 8. And this is a comment that I made last week. I want to reinforce it here. You always have to start with the Scripture, not with the question. You have to start with what it seems like a reasonable thing to conclude that the Scripture teaches, and then ask, how do we answer the question in light of that teaching? And that's what I've tried to do here in our little chat together. What you can't do, I think this is upside down, it's the tail wagging the dog. We say, well, that's what it looks like, but I have this question that I'm not satisfied with your answer, so therefore I'm not going to believe what the text says. I'm going to believe something else. I said, well, we, we got to solve our problems in light of what it seems like the text actually means. Now, i got lots of—almost all my philosopher friends are Arminian. And, and almost almost my apologist friends are Arminian, okay? So I'm a lone duck in, in, in this pond kind of thing. But nevertheless, I, I think that this way of characterizing it is the soundest biblical way. And when I talk with them, what I always get is all these other questions. Since And the questions that, if they're not satisfied, they follow the question rather than following the text. Well, what about this? What about that? What about the other thing? That's why you have to start with the text first. Now, it's fair to ask if you've got a question that you can't answer. Maybe I'm misunderstanding the text, but that drives you back to the text. And I don't know how I can misunderstand the text. It so, seems so clear. And so what I'm trying to do is characterize or give an explanation of how election works that isn't forcing people but but is is that that also maintains some latitude for freedom there's lots of freedom but but allows god to get what god says he wants to get a bride for his christ and secure that which he says he's done and i mean it makes it just makes it all falls together for me really nicely and this idea of inclining the will makes sense to me that's a characterization that hodge uses uh, maybe others do as well, and um, and it, it certainly seems consistent with other a lot of other things that Scripture says about this whole process. So it doesn't obviate freedom. You got freedom, but it's it's not. What's the word I'm looking for? It's not like uh, it's it's not a um, autonomous freedom. It isn't a freedom like no no restrictions, no restraints, no influences. It's all utterly and purely just you. No, there's always going to be influences on the choices that we make, the reasons that we that we um, 
that the, the the things that not just the reasons but the but the the things that drive our decisions and so i i think the freedom of the will is a bit of a complicated concept and um and i think a lot of people haven't thought very much about it but i'm just trying to explain as best i can the way i think it it works that makes sense of our own acts of freedom and makes sense of good theology that the fall certainly clearly has influenced our the range of freedoms we have and trying to make sense of the what strikes me as the very straightforward teaching of scripture particularly here in this example in romans 8 so i don't know if does that resonate with you at all i think so yeah just to kind of uh, incredibly simply kind of parrot back what you what i think i heard um was that basically there's not really a good way to characterize how God moves in terms of predestination, but it's essentially that he does, he, he makes himself known in our hearts and minds in such a way that would lead us to him. Without that movement, we would never come to him. Is that correct? Well, it's, for, it's more than that. So it's correct as far as you put it, but the movement that God does not only is a is a necessary peace it is a sufficient peace so um here's the way i've characterized it sometimes before that god god um you think of a continuum okay and and you've got fallenness and you got salvation fallenness on the left and salvation on the right okay and we are in a fallen state okay and we're we're stuck there because of the nature of the fall all right, and so our even our will is tainted. Martin Luther talked a lot about this, and so and and so God has to do something, and we pretty much all agree that God's got to act, okay, to do something. On an Arminian view, God draws everybody halfway, halfway being to the point where the effects of the fall are not uh, determinative of your decision about God. In other words, he draws us enough so we have what people would, some would say is a genuine freedom of the will. We can choose on our own, or we can reject on our own. He takes us all that way, and then we decide whether or not we're going to go. So in that way of looking at it, it is the human decision that is the final determinative it is necessary that God work to bring us halfway, but it, it's not that's necessary for our salvation, but it is not sufficient for our salvation. The thing that needs to be added is our libertarian free choice to believe in Christ. That's one view. You with me so far? Yeah. Okay, so on that view, God brings everybody halfway. On the Reform view, God brings some people all the way. He brings some people all the way. It's necessary for him to bring them, but it's also sufficient for their salvation. He doesn't bring everybody halfway. Lots of people, he just leaves. He, he, Romans 1 says he just gives them over. He lets them go their own way. Romans 8, following the flesh, the life of the flesh, as opposed to the trajectory of the Spirit. You know, these are, just lets them go. Now, he may, there may re, re, be revelation for them, but he doesn't do anything to bring them halfway, okay? If he's going to act to bring them, he's going to bring them all the way in. 
And that's the notion of election and predestination to become conformed to the image of his son. And of course, in order to become conformed to the image of his son of a certainty, they got to get saved first. And that's why salvation is part of that package that leads to glorification, Romans 8. So uh, that would be the distinction that I'd make there. Um, that God's action for everybody believes is necessary. But the reform view, the one that I've been ex- describing here, holds that it's also sufficient. God doesn't bring everybody halfway, He brings some people all the way. And okay. that's called election and predestination with regards to salvation. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. And guess what? One second, and the show is over. So it was perfect <laughs> timing. <laughs> Sorry to take up all the time for everyone else. Yeah, but, uh, I wasn't I thinking about helpful. Yeah, look at it. Thank you so much for the call, Nathan. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. All the best to you, brother. Bye-bye now. Likewise. That was a good call. Perfectly timed. It took me 33 years to learn to do that. <laughs> All right, friends, Greg Kokel here for Santa Reason. You give out, go out and give them heaven. All right, bye-bye now.